Chapter 10 of Hoof and Claw. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kevin Vink. Hoof and Claw by Charles Roberts. The Fisher in the Shoots. He was plainly a duck. The most casual and uninitiated of observers would have said so at a glance. Yet not the most stupidly casual could have taken him for any ordinary duck. He was too imposing in appearance, too gorgeous in apparel, too bold and vigilant in demeanor to be so misunderstood. Moreover, he was not in the situation or the surroundings which one is wont to associate with ducks. In fact, after the fashion of a cormorant or a kingfisher, he was perched motionless on a big dead stub of a branch. This branch was thrust out very obligingly in just the place where this most singular of ducks would have desired it if it had been consulted in the matter it directly overhung a transparent amber-brown shoot of unbroken water in the midst of the loud turmoil of north fork rapids the strange-mannered duck had no proper talons wherewith to grasp his perch but his strong clawed webs held him steadily none the less as he peered downward into the clear rush of the torrent the duck was a handsome male of the red-breasted merganser family and the absorbing interest of his life was fish it was not in the quiet pools and long deep reaches of dark water that he loved to seek his prey but rather to snatch it from the grasp of the loud shoots and the roaring rips here where the north fork stream fell into the odonunsis was a resort exactly to his liking and most of the fish trout salmon grilse or par which journeyed up and down either the fork or the parent river chose to pass through that sleuth of swift but unbroken flow immediately beneath the overhanging branch on which he perched for all the splendor of his plumage the merganser was not conspicuous where he sat all about him was a tumult of bright and broken color scattered in broad splashes the rapids were foam-white or golden-ruddy or deep shining green-brown under the sharp and patchy sunlight and they were sown thickly with wet black rocks here and there glinting with purple the merganser had a crested head of iridescent green-black a broad collar of lustrous white black back black and white wings white belly sides finely penciled in black and white and a breast of rich chestnut red streaked with black his feet were red his long narrow beak with its saw-toothed edges and sharp hooked tip was bright red in every line and hue he was unmistakably an aristocrat among ducks and an arrogant one at that his fierce red eyes staring down fixedly in the flowing amber of the current marked piercingly every fish that passed up and down most of them were much too big not for his appetite but for his powers his beak with its keen toothed edges was a formidable weapon by means of which he could doubtless have captured disabled and dragged ashore even a fish of a pound or so in weight but here he was at a terrible disadvantage as compared with the owls hawks and eagles he had no rending claws had he taken such a prize he could not have profited by it having no means of tearing it to pieces he had no use for fish too big to be swallowed whole so he was obliged to watch greedily and savagely the great salmon the grilse and the larger trout as they darted through the sliding glow beneath his perch but suddenly straight and swift as a diving cormorant he shot down into the torrent and disappeared beneath the surface 
a watcher directly overhead escaping the baffling reflections might have seen him swimming head outstretched mastering the tremendous rush of the stream with mighty strokes fairly outspeeding the fish in their own element near the limit of the clear water he overtook and seized the quarry which he had marked a trout not far from seven inches in length the saw-toothed edges of his beak gripped it securely and he rose with it to the surface just where the chute was breaking into a smother of trampled foam with a furious flapping of wings he lifted himself almost clear of the flood and beat along the tossed surface dragging tail and feet for perhaps a dozen yards before he could get into full flight once fairly a wing however he wheeled and made back hurriedly for his perch here he proceeded to swallow his prize head first it was a long difficult choking process for the fish was one of the stoutest he had ever attempted but a little choking was of small consequence in view of his heroic appetite and after many an undignified paroxysm he accomplished the task it might have seemed that a trout of this size was a fairly substantial meal but such was his keenness that even while the wide flukes of his engorged victim were still sticking out at the corners of his beak his fierce red eyes were once more peering downward into the torrent in search of fresh prey just about this time in the clear blue overhead a green-winged teal was beating his way above the treetops making for the stream with the fear of death at his heart a mighty flyer his short muscular wings drove him through the air at a speed not much less than ninety or a hundred miles an hour but behind him overtaking him inexorably came the shape that stood for doom itself in the eyes of all his tribe the dreadful blue falcon or duck hawk the teal knew that his only chance of escape from this long-winged pursuer was to reach the water plunge beneath it and swim for some hiding place under the fringing weeds the teal's wings throbbing with a swift short vibration whistled shrilly in the still air so that a prowling wildcat by the waterside heard the sound even above the dull roar of the rapids and glared upward alertly the long wings of the hawk bent sharply at the elbows worked more slowly but with a nervous terrific thrust that urged him through the air like a projectile for all its appalling speed the sound of his flight was nothing more than a strong pulsating hiss close ahead of him now the teal saw refuge the flashing line of the rapids but the hawk was already close upon him in despair he hurled himself downward too soon the pursuer also shot downward and struck but the lofty top of a water ash just missed by the short wings of the fugitive forced the long pinion of the hawk to swerve a little so that he partly missed his stroke instead of clutching the victim's neck and holding it securely he dealt merely a glancing blow upon the back behind the wings it was enough however and the unhappy teal was hurled earthward flapping through the tips of the branches the great hawk followed hurriedly to retrieve his prey from the ground as it chanced however the victim came down with a thud almost beneath the whiskered nose of the wildcat a pounce and the great cat had her paw upon it and crouched snarling up at the hawk in a fury the hawk swooped and struck downward but wisdom came to him just in time and he did not strike home his swoop became a demonstration merely an expression of his rage at having his prey thus snatched from his beak with one short shrill cry of anger he swerved off and sailed upward over the river the cat growled softly picked up the prize in her jaws and trotted into the bushes to devour it the spot where all this happened was perhaps a hundred yards below that dead tree upon whose outthrust naked branch the splendid merganser drake was making his meal 
In fact, he had just finished it. The last of the trout's tail had just vanished with a spasm down his strained gullet, when the baffled hawk caught sight of him and swooped. Happily for him, he, on his part, caught sight of the hawk, and dropped like lead into the torrent. The hawk alighted on the dead branch, and sat upright, motionless, as if surprised. The change was so sudden that it almost seemed as if the duck had been metamorphosed into a hawk on the instant, by the stroke of invisible enchanter's wand." the fisher of the shoots meanwhile was swimming straight downstream for the broken water like his unfortunate little cousin the teal he too had felt the fear of death smitten into his heart and was heading desperately for the refuge of some dark overhanging bank deep fringed with weeds where the dreadful eye of the hawk should not discern him the hawk sat upon the branch and watched his quarry swimming beneath the surface at last the swimmer came to the broken water and plunged into it Almost instantly he was forced to the top. With only head and wings above the mad smother, he flapped onward frantically, beating down the foam about him. Straightway the hawk glided from his perch and darted after him. The drake sank again instantly, but at this point in the rapids it was impossible for him to stay down. As long as his body was completely submerged, it was at the mercy of the twisting and tortured currents, which rolled him over and over in spite of his swimming craft. He would have been drowned, the breath battered clean out of him in half a minute more, had he maintained the hopelessly unequal struggle. Once more he half emerged, filling his gasping lungs and pounded onward desperately, half flying and half swimming. It was a mongrel method of progression in which he was singularly expert. Immediately over his outstretched, gleaming head flew the hawk but this frequenter of the heights of air for all his savage valor was troubled at the leaping waves and the tossing foam of these mad rapids he did not understand them they seemed to jump up at him and he dare not let his sweeping wing-tips touch them lest they should seize and drag him down as he flew his down-reaching clutching talons were not half a yard above the fugitive's head where the waves for an instant sank they came closer but not quite within grasping reach the marauder from the upper air was waiting till his quarry should reach less turbulent waters a few yards further on the torrent fell seething over a long ledge into a pool of brief quiet immediately beyond the lip of the ledge the hawk lifted his wings high over his back and struck downward so that his talons went deep into the water but water was all they clutched the wily drake had plunged with the plunge of the fall itself and was now darting onward at a safe depth the hawk followed his wing-tips now almost brushing the water the pool was perhaps a hundred yards in length then the combined flow of the north fork and the odonunsis broke once more into turbulence and once more the desperate swimmer was forced to the surface but as before the leaping waves of the rapids were too much for his pursuer and he was able to flap his way onward in a cloud of foam while doom hung low above his head yet hesitated to strike the odds, however, were now laid heavily against the fugitive. The hawk, embittered by the loss of his first quarry, had become as dogged in pursuit as a weasel, not to be shaken off or evaded or deceived. The rapids would presently come to an end, then, in the still water, unless he should chance upon a hiding place, the drake would soon be forced to come to the top for breath, and those throttling talons would instantly close upon his neck but the antic forest fates wearied of the simple routine of the wilderness had decreed an altogether novel intervention and were giggling in their cloaks of ancient moss 
Beside the pool at the foot of the rapids stood a fisherman casting for trout amid the whirling foam clusters. He had three flies on his cast, and, because in these waters there was always the chance of hooking a grilse, he was using heavy tackle. His flies, as befitted these amber-brown, tumultuous northern streams, were large and conspicuous, a parmachini bell for the tail-fly, with a Montreal and a red hackle for the drops. Far across the pool, where an eddy sucked sullenly at the froth patches as they swung by, the fisherman had just had a heavy rise. He had struck too quickly, deceived by the swirl of the current, and missed his fish. He had a lot of line out, and the place was none too free for a long cast, but he was impatient to drop his flies again on the spot where the big fish was feeding. Just as he made his cast, he saw the fleeing drake and the pursuing hawk come round the bend. He saw the frantic fugitive dive over the ledge and disappear. He saw the great hawk swoop savagely. He tried to check his cast, but it was too late. Our mark unsuitable to the printed page exploded upon his lips, and he saw his leader settle deliberately over the long, beating wings, the tail fly coiling about them like a whiplash. The last drop fly, as luck would have it, caught just in the corner of the hawk's angrily open beak, hooking itself firmly. At the sudden sharp sting of it, the great bird turned his head and noticed, for the first time, the fisherman standing on the bank. At the same moment, he felt the light restraint of the almost invisible leader upon his wings, where the other two flies had affixed themselves. He shot up into the air and heard a sharp, disconcerting rattle as the taut line raced from the reel. The drag upon his beak and the light check upon his wings were inexplicable to him and appalling. Drake, Teal, Hunger, and Wrath were all alike forgotten, and he beat upward with a rush that made the reel fairly screech its indignant protest. For a moment the fisherman, bewildered, tried to play him like a salmon. Then the leader parted from the line, the fisherman reeled in the limp coils, and the worried hawk flew off with the flies. The Drake, unrealizing that the dreadful chase was done, sped onward beneath the surface till he could go without breath no longer. Then he came up among some arrowweeds, lifted his head beneath the shelter of one of the broad barbed leaves, and floated there quivering. For a good ten minutes he waited, moveless with the patience of the wild things. Then his terror faded, appetite once more began to invite his attention, and he took note of a minnow flickering slowly over the sun-flecked mud below him. He dived and caught it, came to the surface and swallowed it. Much refreshed, he looked about him. There was no such thing as a hawk in sight. Some way up the shore there was a man at the water's edge fishing. The drake was suspicious of men, though he did not greatly fear them, as he and his rank-fleshed tribe were not interesting to the hunters. He rose noisily into the air, made a detour over the treetops to avoid the fishermen, and flew back to his dead branch overhanging the amber rush of the chutes. End of the Fisher in the Chutes Recording by Kevin Vink.